So who do we trust, huh? Like always, me and Dee. Welcome to Me and the and Three, a Starsky and Hutch fan podcast. I'm Monica. I'm Jen. And I'm Rachel! We just watched Targets Without a Badge, parts one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Now, Monica and I had seen this already, but uh, Rachel had been saving the very end of the series until the last moment to sort of stretch, <laughs> to sort of stretch out uh, the the time before you would have no more new Starsky and Hutch content to watch. Yeah, and I wanted to watch it with you guys, and so now I've seen every episode except Huggy Can't Go Home, which is going to be my last episode, and it's perfect that it's going to be the Huggy one because I love Huggy. So it's true, you are the number one Huggy fan. <laughs> so we have lots of thoughts and reactions to this three parter. But Which, before we get into that, yes. if I may... I, that That's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, I'm sorry, I stepped on your toes! <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, I was first going to say... Which is spiritually perhaps a four-parter, if you consider Sweet Revenge the direct follow-up to Targets Without a Badge. That's indeed, and we should, we should discuss that when yeah. we get into it. But first... Alright, so I just wanted to uh, follow up with some thoughts from our car wash... Oh, watch last time. Or a couple times ago, maybe. I don't remember. Watch, watch, watch. Watch, watch, watch. I was looking up um, some information about uh, the director, Michael Schultz, and he has a, first of all, he has a local connection to us because he's actually from Milwaukee. So that was really cool. And more relevant to everyone else is that I found out he actually directed two episodes of season one of Starsky and Hutch. Uh, which were, was Captain Dover, You're Dead, and Huggy, the Huggy, Kill Huggy other Bear. Yes, Kill, Kill Huggy, Huggy Bear. Bear. There we go. So that's really neat. Yeah, so we, we didn't know this going in, but it makes a lot of sense in terms of directors from that era, someone who'd worked with Antonio Fargus already. And I appreciate that they hired a black director for those episodes. Mm-hmm. That's significant, and for all the... For all the ways that Starsky and Hutch can be uh, not great about race in certain moments, um, it's nice to see certain things that they were doing that were genuinely putting their money where their mouth was. So that's just a fun coda uh, from our last episode. And I don't think we had anything else to follow up on. Uh, We wanted to spend most of this episode talking specifically about Targets Without a Badge since it is such a long contained uh, piece of the show. And one that is worth rewatching. There is definitely stuff that I noticed in the second run through that I didn't notice in the first, and also stuff that I forgot until a second before the reveal. So that was a, a nice moment of, oh, I know what's going to happen now, and then being excited. Um, like when they audition for porn. <laughs> Good times. But I think we should start um, by the thing that. Rachel and I were enjoying, and perhaps the reason that Rachel decided to sing her introduction uh, to this episode, which is that the uh, character of uh, Lionel Rigger in the first episode is played by Ted Ted Neely. (laughs) Sorry, Ted Neely. (laughs) Is played by Ted Neely, uh, who most famously played Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. Do, do, do. Do, do, do. And he was in the stage version, then he was in the film version from 1973, and then he continued to appear in stage productions of it up through 2010 was the most recent time he played the role. So he has spent a lot of his life playing Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. And I know I personally found that really interesting in context with this episode, because he does not have a long 
filmography. Obviously, he has a, a long history in stage work, but he had 15 things listed on his IMDb page, and a significant chunk of those were post-Starsky and Hutch, which means that at the time that he appeared in Targets Without a Badge, his most notable role was definitely uh, Jesus Christ. And then he is playing a character in this episode who puts his trust in these uh, other figures and is ultimately betrayed by them and winds up dying. And then they throw away their silver pieces. And I feel like this is not a coincidence. I mean, he becomes a martyr. He absolutely becomes a martyr and, and sets the rest of it in motion. So I feel like the casting director was doing something deliberate by casting someone who was most famously Jesus in this particular role. Jen, while you were gone this summer, did you know that Rachel made me listen to a Muppets <laughs> cover of Jesus Christ Superstar? And not just the song, the whole musical. We don't listen to the whole musical, but quite a few songs. Kermit was Jesus. I mean, of course. What else? I mean... Gonzo was Judas. Interesting. I, You know, I guess that makes sense. Because... Best friends. And Fozzie would never betray no, him. No, he wouldn't. Like, I, I was thinking, like, I would consider Fozzie his best friend. Although, but But Fozzie would never... Fo- who was Fozzie? Actually, I think he was Simon. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Okay. Who was Punch's pilot? Um, the, the shrimp dude. <laughs> Pepe the Prawn? Yes! <laughs> Pepe the Prawn Punch's pilot! That's beautiful. That was really good. I'll have to watch this. It's not, it's just songs, I think. Yeah. But it's, okay. it's not One the guy entire, doing all the voices. I will listen yeah, to this. It's not the entire musical, unfortunately, but it is, it is a good chunk in like the most famous songs. That's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> so what are our other observations about uh, starting with this first episode? I want to talk a bit about how culpable are Starsky and Hutch in Lionel's death? Because Huggy hears from Lionel that Lionel wants to testify against this judge. Or he wants to give evidence against this judge. And so Huggy hooks up Lionel with Starsky and Hutch. And Starsky and Hutch kind of try their best, but they still end up releasing his name and his name gets to the judge, and then he gets killed. And all that, I feel like Starsky and Hutch really did try to do right by Lionel. Like, the case wasn't going to go forward without Lionel's name. And I think Lionel said that if a push came to shove, he would testify. I'd have to rewatch that scene to make sure, but I think he said that in an earlier scene. So for the most part, I can forgive Starsky and Hutch all that. But then Hutch's car is blown up. Starsky is with Lionel upstairs. He sees it happen. He instantly completely ditches the witness. He ditches Lionel to run out to Cradle Hutch. And, like, far be it for me to deny Starsky cradling Hutch (laughs) in a moment of fear. And that scene is... The cradling is top-notch cradling. Starsky's like, oh, it's, it's okay. And Hutch is like, what? What's going on? And then Lionel gets killed, of course. And that moment of prioritizing Hutch's life over Lionel's safety. I just, like, on the one hand, I think it feels in character. I think, uh, on the other hand, what was Starsky thinking? Like, he had to have known that it would be to lure them out or something. Like, Hutch's car isn't going to blow up for no reason. So did he do the absolute worst thing? I think he could have, I mean, okay. I don't know that he should have left Lionel, but he could have done it at least in a slightly better way. Like, say, lock the door and get under the bed, for example. Like, that would, you know, but I guess he's in such distress. I mean, I think the real problem, and and it's notable that in the third of the three parts... They have a, a scene where Starsky and Hutch realize that they have been screwing up this entire time. That they have not been listening to anybody and it has gotten people killed. And I really like that moment of them accepting responsibility for what they've done. But they don't mention the leaving him in the apartment or safe house or whatever thing. And I think part of that is that it doesn't bear thinking about too much because ultimately... 
it was a scene written for convenience rather than a scene that made sense either emotionally or sort of logistically. Because I can't imagine that a police department in that situation would just leave one detective who was investigating the case to be guarding this guy. You've got other cops. If there were like a pair of uniformed officers there to serve as bodyguards for Lionel, then it wouldn't have mattered. Like Starsky could have gone down to save Hutch and then there would have been other people there with guns to guard Lionel. And I, I think if any you know real police department were doing this, that would have been the situation. But they needed there to be a situation where Lionel was left alone so that he could get killed, so Starsky and Hutch could feel guilty and wind up resigning from the force. So I just, I feel like they're, I feel like it was the writers taking the easy way out when they might have come up with a better solution that would have had the same result, but wouldn't have been so contrived and made the characters act so irresponsibly. Yeah, especially since uh, the the various people involved in the case were saying, yeah, we'll protect Lionel. And that's why they finally, I mean, if they were just giving Starsky and Hutch as guards, that's not a lot of protection, especially when one of them has to leave to go grocery shopping. At the very least, have an officer dropping right. off groceries. Well, I mean, for one thing, it was the DA who promised that they would that there would be protection for Lionel, right? I think so. So he didn't actually follow up with the backup because he wanted Starsky and Hutch to be stretched thin, right. so that they could get Lionel murdered. One of the very last reveals of the three parter is that the DA was the inside man, which was a good twist because he came off as like so genuine that I didn't, yeah, I didn't see that coming. He came off as genuinely conniving, and so we thought he was sort of like. A, a garden variety attention whore and not yeah. someone with much more sinister motives. So him setting himself up as like not a great dude made us trust him yes. paradoxically, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is good. But the other thing is that like Hutch, despite knowing that they are in the process of protecting an important witness and that there's corruption in the system is like super chill about his groceries like, he, I think he leaves his window open, and, like, he notices the guy under the car next to him, and it doesn't ping to him that maybe this will be a problem. Also, this is an assassin who wears a metallic silver jacket everywhere. Yes, I think Soldier's jacket was the exact jacket that Hutch <laughs> wears when he's undercover in the episode Survival. It's like, what? <laughs> that is the least inconspicuous but that shows how good of an assassin he is spoiler he's a terrible assassin <laughs> i mean he's successful yeah, he well, kills two people, people yeah. <laughs> but like okay i don't want to jump ahead too much but in targets without a badge part three well should we jump ahead or should we backtrack I mean, if I, it's relevant to the discussion. Yeah. Well, just relevant to how bad Soldier is at his mm -hmm. job of killing Starsky and Hutch. Just the whole setup at the abandoned amusement park. If his job is to kill Starsky and Hutch, just kill them. Just shoot them. What was the trade about? But, I don't know, maybe he actually wanted one of them alive to, like, play with. It makes more sense if you think that Soldier is, like, really quirky and weird. But it doesn't really come off. Like... You he guys mentioned. Weird. You guys mentioned that if he was the Joker, it would make more sense that he picked an abandoned amusement park <laughs> to make that trade. And if he were a Joker type who wanted to play with his victims, then I can see the whole "you step forward and we'll let Allison step forward and we'll trade Allison for one of you guys." Well, after Allison was with the other guy, was he going to let the other guy go? It just made no sense whatsoever. I mean, uh, once again, I think that's just down to the writing, especially because. Other than that, like, that that assassin has been, I mean, he did successfully kill two people, and with, like, terrible last lines. <laughs> but he did it, and he was wearing his bright silver jacket and got away with it. But the, the other two guys who were trying to assassinate Starsky and Hutch were consistently bad at their jobs. Right. The thing is, like, if you're going to kill someone, 
don't draw attention to yourselves while you're still like 50, 70 feet away. <laughs> like wait until you're right next to them. They won't notice if you appear to be a customer at the cafe. And then shoot. Like, why are you, like, suddenly screeching tires while you're still a block away? <laughs> That's the worst. Yeah, th- and those guys tried several different times. And it's like, is a sauna a good place to kill people? <laughs> like, Hey, a- Jen. <laughs> hey, Jen. <laughs> what do you call a hit in a steam bath? A sassonation. <laughs> I I made that pun while we were watching, and I was only halfway through the word when Monica started shaking her head at me. So that was beautiful. I but I, I guess what I mean is that like if it had just been those guys making the trade, I'd be like, okay, sure, they're bad at their jobs. This is par for the course for them. But having the good assassin be part of it kind of ruined that dichotomy. Mm, but see, then you can choose to believe that either the assassin is good. But then there's something we don't know. And this is what fan fiction is good for. (laughs) What if we just didn't hear about it in the episode, but the whole plan was to frame Hutch with Starsky's death. And so he needed Starsky, but Hutch would go free, but he'd have their guns. And they'd be like, ooh, they were fighting over Allison. And it got too heated at this abandoned amusement (laughs) park. Great spot for a date <laughs> that you go on with your buddy. Which can we talk about that? Yes. <laughs> but first, uh, I think we should address uh, Hutch's Doctor Who cosplay. <laughs> At the beginning of Targets Without a Badge Part Two, Hutch rolls up in a tiny, tiny, tiny convertible. In a fourth Doctor cosplay. Is like, it tiny? Like, there's only two seats, but it's also enormous in, like, the engine section. I guess. I don't know. It just Hutch makes it look small. When he first rolls up with the umbrella open and he's driving, <laughs> it looks like he's in a clown car. And he's got a long scarf, which incidentally does get caught in the door. And uh, a floppy hat. And he lives in California. Yeah. (laughs) Like, none of this is necessary. And it really does look like he left the force and had no idea what to do with his time and turned on PBS and watched a Doctor Who marathon and decided this is my new look. (laughs) Had canon accepted. (laughs) So that, that was interesting. And also, like... There, I mean, this is this is consistent across Starsky and Hutch, where there are moments that are funny, but because they're the comedy parts, they don't have to make any logical sense. Because in the same scene where Hutch is terrified of entering the Torino because he's convinced there could be a bomb in it, and they open the trunk, and spoiler, there's a cat in it. Or sorry, they open the the hood. Hood. Thank you. That's a word. They open the hood, and there's a cat in it. Like, he is legitimately afraid, and that's completely legitimate for somebody who in the previous episode got blown up. But at the same time, he has bought the most conspicuous possible vehicle. But also, it's very much against his type, because what does he drive? He drives, like, beat-up beige cars, so this is, like, the opposite of that. So it's like, is it really his car? That's not... it's like, misdirection... That's not the detective that we've been tracking. That's a British Time Lord. <laughs> I guess we're off the track. Does, does this make does this make Starsky Sarah Jane? I mean, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm down with that. So yeah, that car is ridiculous. Bell. The car has a name. The Torino never has a name. Like I mean, striped tomato is a a thing to call it, but it's not like a human name. I'm not going to name my child Striped Tomato. Really? (laughs) Now I think we should talk a little bit about Allison, a.k.a. Laura. I loved her. At first I thought she was going to be involved and she's going to be shady. And I think that's probably what we're meant to think. Mm -hmm. So when, like, Starsky was, like, crying and, like, it was, like, you know... It was revealed that it was genuine, even though I thought, well, she could find out a lot of this stuff, you know. It was just really sweet, and I was like, oh man, I want, like, buckets of fic of, like, baby Laura and baby David, (laughs) like, scrapping around together, you know? 
I I would love that. And I love that it gives us at least something of a timeline for Starsky's life because it it tells us that he was in New York City until he was at least 11. Because we assume they're around the same age and that he was still there and knew that she didn't come back to school because she was in a car accident and allegedly died. So I like that, like, sort of glimpse of his history, which we only get in fits and starts across the series. Also, I guess this is the episode where we learn what street Hutch, or sorry, what street Starsky's house was on. Although that's still unclear because he says 84th Street in one episode and he says 48th Street in the next. Well, when he said 48th, wasn't he talking about the street where a kid did some trick involving crashing through a window? Yeah. He was, but I think that was meant to be like, remember that street we lived on? Remember when this kid we hung out with did this thing and everyone on our street was excited about it? Like, given how, given the, the, the shape and the culture of New York, I can't imagine they would be hanging out at 48th Street when they lived at 84th. And also, like, 48th Street would have been a weird, I guess it depends on what avenue it would have been crossed with, but that seems like a weird place to be hanging well, out. Because that's like Times Square. Area. Well, maybe that's what, maybe, maybe that's what the... Right. Well, I don't... Well, if they hung out there multiple times, maybe there was some store that they liked hanging out on. Hanging out at. It's possible. Or a but park that they did these stunts at or something. I I still choose to believe that it was meant to be 84th throughout and that it was consist- supposed to be consistent for both. Okay. That's my headcanon. But yeah, I, I, like, I like Allison a lot. Uh... And it's so weird that these episodes are right before Starsky versus Hutch because it's such a different version of Starsky and Hutch are both interested in the same woman. Like, this seems like a situation where they'd probably all be down for the threesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I think it's so interesting that Starsky and Hutch are both trying to spend time with Allison and Hutch chooses to take Allison out to lunch just with him and her, and then asks what her evening plans are, and she's like, oh, Starsky's made plans with me, you're invited too. I mean, Starsky invited you too. (laughs) It's like, Starsky gets fancy tickets to an orchestra, which, you know, even Hutch acknowledges is out of character for Starsky, and so he's obviously doing it to impress Allison, and yet he invites (laughs) Hutch along. And it's just like, either Starsky is the most, like, the fairest uh, sportsman in the world who's, like, willing to give his competition every last chance, or he loves spending time with Hutch so much that even when he's chasing a girl, he's having fun, like, competing with Hutch, and that's half the fun. Or he thinks that afterwards the three of them will, you know, have a nightcap and then all fall into bed together. That is what it was doing. That was happening until the reveal. Like, that was the direction it was going. And this is the same episode where they are fairly close to getting a job doing porn together. (laughs) Which is necessary to discuss, I think. Because that scene is amazing. Oh my god, this is the thing where he's like asking, the porn director's asking if they have an act, and you know, if they're, if they're like a team, and, and Hutch says that they're like partners, and that they're like together, and it's just like, oh my god! And the guy is like super chill about that, the only thing that takes him aback is when Hutch says I can do a handstand, and then he says, oh, I've never seen that before. Which seems weird! I, I really... Seen. I don't know, sexy handstands? It seems weird to I me, I really want to know what he was picturing in that moment. Like, is he imagining, like, I don't know, him, like, standing on his hands over a woman's... Yes! <laughs> and, and then that, like, there, that, leaves, that leaves his junk, like, a mouth height for someone who's, like, crouching a little. Oh, I guess that's good. Like, on be- a bed? Because Sit then, on a bed. Yeah, because then, like, Starsky could be supporting his his legs. Yep. While, Get into town. While he's sucking him off. And then, like, that would help so that... I just feel like... And Hutch can go to town on some lady down the, there. The blood is gonna rush to your head. Right. Like, I can't imagine he could get that woman off in a handstand position. It's not about getting them off. It's about getting the viewer off. They just have to do it <laughs> okay, long yes. enough. But, like, how long can you do a handstand? 
I mean, I have seen on State Street occasionally musicians who play their guitar and sing on, on their head. So the link so was that much? <laughs> was it black bean soup? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I think it's not that weird. I think that porn director is just doing too much vanilla stuff. Well, somebody should draw this fan art. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't know what they thought the job was going to be to begin with, because that advertisement, in both its specificity and its lack thereof, seemed real sketchy. Like, we want attractive athletic young men for an unspecified job with flexible hours. I have read so much <laughs> smutty stories with that, like, and the naive, often blonde, uh, <laughs> goes and he goes to check it out and then he finds it's like a sexy gay bar and then he's like, what? But I have to do it, I guess, because I promise. Okay, but if you're like a 19-year-old who just moved to the big city, that's one thing. These are 30-something police officers. Some of these men are in their late 20s, at least. I just feel like Starsky and Hutch should know better. This is, <laughs> this is the job that they work. They know. They were just in the wrong genre. That's all. But then, so, like, they're almost hired to do threesome porn. Then they have a very threesome dynamic with Allison. And then, at some point, they wind up in a porn theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with Huggy, too. With Huggy. Huggy. So there's always a, a third. <laughs> and then, <laughs> just, I love watching your face when Hutch said the things he says to Starsky to get him out of the theater. <laughs> Is you're better looking than that guy. The way to get your friend to like leave a porn theater to go stop a crime. In this one, I guess. (laughs) See, I feel like what happened is after they rushed out of the audition for the porn house, which they were a shoe in for, apparently, that guy loved them. (laughs) Starsky just couldn't get out of his head. What if we did go into the porn movies? And then he really wanted to, like, watch a porn movie to kind of, like, think, what if Hutch and I did do that? Like, is this something I could do? And so he was just, he wanted to rewatch a porn movie thinking, could I do this? And that's why he was so interested in watching and why Hutch was like, oh, you're so much better than that guy. You'd look ridiculous in a sequin mask anyway. Because that line makes the most sense if Starsky's been like, oh, come on, let's, like, go and, and see, like, what we were setting ourselves up for. And Hutch is like, ah, uh, we would never go into porn for real. And Starsky's disappointed. But clearly after this, he buys a pair of sequin masks <laughs> and they have some fun. <laughs> Speaking of, I mean, this is jumping around a little, but um, I wanted to say that I really appreciate the parallels you find in this three-parter with the pilot. Like, you have the scene in the sauna uh, where they go to a sauna. <laughs> though it's not a private one like the pilot one was, they have the, particularly in the porn theater, where they're, you know, eating their popcorn and Huggy is in the row above them and leaning forward to chat with them. Well, no, I think he's in the front row ahead of them, maybe in the pilot. But still, that, like, same triangle setup, it was just, it's really nice and fun, and I really appreciated those moments. It just occurred to me. It was a good catch. We were like, why the heck does Starsky have like five towels wrapped around him while he's in the sauna? <laughs> they were supposed to meet uh, his like surrogate uncle there, and maybe he was embarrassed to be like mostly naked in front of his surrogate <laughs> uncle. <laughs> you know what? His surrogate uncle absolutely saw Starsky buck naked running through his kitchen because, you know, they've been friends since they were babies. It's true. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. I mean, I guess Starsky would still feel embarrassed about that, but the uncle wouldn't care at all. Yeah. It's, I mean, he might care, but, like, mostly (laughs) just because he's got really complicated feelings, R.E. Starsky, at this point. Well, yeah. But But Starsky's (laughs) nakedness would be, like, no big deal. Like, yeah, I saw you when you were three and, like, decided to, like, I don't know, run through (laughs) with spaghetti sauce all over your naked body because you had knocked over the pot. Run run through a screen door not knowing that it was a screen door <laughs> and not an open door. Kid um, did that at my sixth birthday oh party. My God. <laughs> not naked. <laughs> but my parents had to fix the screen door. 
I, okay, I should have checked up on this to verify it before we started recording, but I've definitely read somewhere that these episodes were filmed with Targets Without a Badge Part 1, 2, and 3 immediately before Sweet Revenge. Mm -hmm. And that Starsky versus Hutch got switched around uh, in broadcast order or maybe even just in DVD order? No, in broadcast order. It was supposed to air earlier in the season. So Starsky versus Hutch wasn't initially planned to be between the three-parter and the finale. And I think that makes sense when you consider all the parallels with the pilot in the three-parter because they couldn't put those parallels in Sweet Revenge since Starsky's in the hospital for most of it. Um, But they were able to put those parallels in what was essentially an extended finale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think, and narratively, it is true that Starsky versus Hutch feels quite out of place there. Emotionally, I don't mind it because I think you can come up with reasons. They don't necessarily make consistent sense, but the angst uh, of Starsky versus Hutch, which works especially well if you assume that Hutch sleeps with Kira because he's jealous of Starsky and Kira and wants Starsky for himself, which is a way I sometimes choose to read that episode, works very well right before Sweet Revenge with Starsky getting shot. Because, like, what's the worst thing you can do right before your best friend gets shot? Sleep with his woman. That's true. It just, it makes me a little sad. Obviously, like, the level of continuity between episodes is slim to none in much of Starsky and Hutch, but... Given the targets without a badge is such a long uh, story, and then emotionally goes straight into sweet revenge, it's weird for Allison to drop out of the picture and for Kira to be there immediately right after. It makes me wish that we were able to have some more time with Allison. In fact, imagine a Starsky versus Hutch where it was Allison. That could work. Starsky ultimately does decide he he's not going to keep inviting Hutch to the dates <laughs> and is the falling in love with Allison with their shared history. Makes more sense than him falling in love with Kira. Nothing like, I, I don't dislike Kira. I mean, she's written to be dislikable in some ways. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's not that I think it's inconceivable that Starsky's falling in love with her. She's, you know... She she seems bubbly and intelligent and, and kind before you realize that she's, you know, happy to... Anyway. I think it's valid. It's... I mean, she sort of... She comes out of nowhere, and the benefit of having Allison for two episodes already, and knowing that she and Starsky have that kind of history, would probably have made Starsky versus Hutch a, a more emotionally resonant episode. Because as it is, it's hard to buy into their conflict... Because it does come across so quickly and because they have clearly both tried to date the same girl in the past, (laughs) in the very recent past, if you're watching this in arid order. So it it is a bit weird. And I also like to imagine a universe where you cut out Starsky versus Hutch or it, it happened earlier and where Allison is in Sweet Revenge. And then you've got her having just lost her father now also dealing with the fact that her boyfriend is in the hospital and adding that extra layer onto the people who are like traumatized by uh what happens to Starsky I think that that like I would read that fanfic basically I agree that fanfic but honestly I feel like then Allison's emotional response to Starsky getting shot would just take away screen time from Hutch's emotional response to Starsky Oh totally Hutch. totally and I can't say that I wouldn't maybe just be a little annoyed and be like, this is Hutch's loss, not your loss. I I want to say, like, can Allison even interact with them much after this that's, story? That's a because good question. I feel, because the thing is, you had the corrupt FBI dudes. Well, they they were like, yeah, I mean, they were unintentionally, they were clearly corrupt a little bit, but they weren't like super evilly corrupt, I guess. Well, they had to have known that Judge was... Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, ultimately, though, they were talking about how, you know, the the judge knew about all these um, uh, witness protection people, and so, like, they've all got to, like, you know, yeah. they've all got to get re, re replaced. I mean, you know, they've all got to uh, get new identities, probably. Um, yeah, like, ultimately, like, I, I liked the sort of 
cute little like threesome note of the end of Targets Without a Badge, but it probably should have been something more like The Fix. Because at the end of The Fix, it's just like, hey, we like each other, but like, I need to go elsewhere and not be part of this. And I think she would probably have to go into a new like version of witness protection with new people knowing where she went and who she was now, given everything she'd seen at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I can kind of imagine is like what happens after the end of that. And that's why she's out of the picture. Yeah. That's, and so it's like, so Eve, so like Hutch could even theoretically be feeling some guilt that he can't let her know that Starsky's in the hospital and dying, but also being like, I don't want to share this grief with her necessarily, you know? Right. So you could, you could dive deep into some good angst yeah. and selfishness on Hutch's part. I think I mostly just want more of Allison. Like, I, I would, I don't know how much fic there is that she's in, if any, but I would certainly like to see more of her in some mm-hmm. capacity. I agree. But for the show, it, it made sense to not include her past targets without a badge. You brought up the moment where Hutch and Starsky are at Hutch's apartment, and Hutch is saying, we didn't listen to anyone, what makes us so smart? realizing that they should have trusted you know Dobie and and not just gone on gone off half cocked in fact i think he says we approach this case with the finesse of a wrecking ball which yeah. is very true i i think a lot of the stuff they did was fairly like logical investigative work but it's true that they had no subtlety whatsoever mm-hmm. um and people got hurt as a result and I, I did like that moment a lot. And another moment that I feel is similar is at the end of part one when Huggy really takes them to task. Yes. <gasps> yes. I wanted to talk about that moment. I felt like not only was Huggy yelling at them for letting Lionel get killed, but it felt like he was kind of taking out all this pent up past frustration he's had with them using him as a snitch while also being his friend and like usually there's no actual acknowledgement of this being an issue in episodes where uh, he's their friend, they hang out together, um, but also he gives them information and they often ask him for quite complicated and sometimes dangerous things. And how much he actually gets repaid for that, it's unclear. Like, you do occasionally see Huggy getting something concrete back from him from them from Mm -hmm. his relationship with them but usually it's them getting lots of stuff from huggy and so i felt like him yelling at them was long overdue and and kind of satisfying for the viewer Mm -hmm. yeah and like antonio vargas is great in these episodes like his his role is fairly small but when he does appear it's really significant and a, a wide range of emotions and like, his existence there and the way that he's there for, for Lionel's wife in the aftermath. Like, I I just really enjoyed seeing those connections um, between them. And it made me want Vic, <laughs> um, <laughs> as, as things usually do. Either, and honestly, I'd be fine with e- either or both of these options. Either Huggy and Lionel were a thing like in sort of you know if Lionel had an open marriage or poly arrangement with his wife or as Rachel pointed out like maybe they used to have a thing and then Lionel got married but there's always been like a a comfort between them or after Lionel dies if Huggy gets close to the wife whose name I have forgotten it was something Mardine yeah it was something with yeah with an M that was like not that I hadn't heard of before but if he became sort of a, a parent to the, the kid, um, which you sort of see implied, like she already is calling him Uncle Huggy and is, you know, feeling very close to him. And that's a nice parallel, too, that you've got this friend who is like an uncle to the kid in the same series of episodes where you get that bit of Starsky's past as well. Mm-hmm. This importance of people who are not blood family but are just as much family is uh, a nice through line of the episodes. Anyway, Huggy's great. He is. He's great when he's pretending to be the mortgage salesman. Oh my God. I love that so much. And the lady hitting on him. 
<laughs> She's just like, I'm annoyed, but you're hot, so continue talking. <laughs> I mean... That was great. Oh, more huggy forever, please. He's so good. Another character who appeared in two of the three parts, I believe, that that officer behind the desk or... <gasps> yes! <laughs> yeah. I don't know what her rank was, but she was assigned to take their statement when their first car got stolen, or at least the engine got stolen. or What got stolen? I was confused. Everything. Like, Everything? The, the hubcaps got stolen, the tailpipe got okay. stolen, the, the <laughs> engine got stolen. Just, yeah. And also that they had to go to her to get their gun permits. And both times she was so done with them. And (laughs) they were trying to hurry her along or command respect because they were police. They were detectives for six or seven years. And she's just like, yeah, but you're not anymore. And (laughs) just like forcing them to do paperwork. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was great. Dobie was really good in these episodes, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked his continue, like it, I understand structurally why it didn't work, but I would have loved to see the scene where they like officially resigned with him. I felt like that scene where Mardine, uh, goes to Dobie to beg for Lionel's death. Wow. I've lost the ability to talk. (laughs) Beg for Lionel's life. Uh, it just felt kind of unnecessary, and Dobie came across as just kind of, like, not knowing what the heck to do with this woman, which, like, fair, but, like, then what was the point of the scene? I felt like Dobie's dialogue in the first part wasn't very... Yeah. He was just there to kind of, like, point out the obvious, I think. But then as the, as the episodes progressed, by the end, he was occasionally taking Starsky and Hutch to task for all the things they were doing wrong, and then also... Uh, when they finally, you know, were working with him, it was great to see the three of them working together after they'd been apart for a while or at odds for a while. And he was so proud when they got their badges back. Mm-hmm. And that was lovely to see. And I thought, um, there's that one moment where he was like shaking hands with a another officer or someone from a different department who'd been working on the case. And I don't think that guy showed up again. So I don't think he was one of the bad guys, right? Was Dobbs? Was it Dobbs? I can't he remember. Was, um, he was like a higher up in the FBI, I think. Yes. Oh. And no, he wasn't a bad guy. Okay. Yeah. I just, I like the idea that like we saw Dobie having like interpersonal relationships beyond <laughs> Starsky and Hutch that like clearly this is an old friend of his that he was happy to see again and they were going to get lunch and like just having those, those moments of uh, like... If the show had lasted longer, it would have been nice to keep getting more of those moments of of Dobie's world and Huggy's world beyond their interaction with Starsky and Hutch. I have to say, I didn't really like the part right near the very end where everyone's like, oh, these fine young men, they're so heroic, look at these heroes. Because it felt a little bit like they were telling the viewer that. And it's possible that I'm overly sensitive to TV shows trying to tell me how good their heroes are. It's like, yeah, I love Starsky and Hutch. You don't have to convince me. But I felt like that was a little overplayed. Well, maybe I'm giving the show too much credit, but Hutch seemed singularly unimpressed with it when they walked out of there. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I wonder who wrote that speech for the mayor. And like, like sort of seeing it as nonsense and seeing it as them like talking him up too much and so I I guess a a more a more generous reading of the scene I think would be one of this is how mayors and and sort of institutions with their pomp and circumstance just easily build this up again but these cops on the ground Starsky and Hutch themselves know that they did screw up a lot and that they don't necessarily deserve these kind of accolades. Yeah, at the end of the day, this was wrapped up, but two people died. And, like, they definitely... I feel like they take more responsibility for their actions in these episodes than they do in a lot of other episodes. So it bothered me less than it might have in other situations. Interesting to know. I mean, because you say two people died... More than two people died because they themselves killed Soldier. Oh, right. 
And that was, like, kind of revengey. But he was an assassin who was trying to kill them. He was, but Hutch said at the end that he hoped that um, Lionel was more at peace now. So there definitely was that revenge element. It was revengey, but also Soldier and his people were, like, firing at them at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. It was, I mean, obviously, but I'm just saying that it's, it's... I think they would have had a sense of satisfaction even if it had just been a matter of arresting him and putting him in jail. But in that moment, the only choice they had was to shoot him because he was actively trying to murder them. Also, three people died. If you if you count the people that they didn't kill, if you if you don't count soldier and the and the things, three people died because there was Lionel, the judge, and the DA. The DA died. Yes. I don't remember the DA dying. They get him at the airport, and then the lady. Oh right, oh, right, right. Oh right, I forgot about that. And they catch Whoops. the lady. <laughs> right. So that's why it was sort of at a dead. They were sort of at a dead end. Like, yeah, they got the lady, but she's a, a lesser. She's just, like, she's still just a... Was she the right. same lady? Sorry, I have a really hard time remembering faces. Was she the same lady who was, like, threatening uh, the surrogate yes. uncle? Okay. Yes, and she was the one who saw them investigating the flower girl in the office building. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was off to the side. I remembered her, but I remembered her between the scene of her seeing the flower girl and her threatening the uncle guy. Uh, but then I, at the end, it had been a while since I'd seen her, and so I couldn't remember. I forgot the DA died because at, toward the end, it was just a jumble of middle-aged white men, and I could not <laughs> keep anyone straight. So <laughs> I did not remember exactly what was going on there, but you were right. You, you've watched more carefully than I did. Uh, I just remember noticing how comfortable those airport chairs looked. <laughs> <laughs> Traveling in the 70s was very different, although you were more at risk for getting your plane hijacked, so there's that. Once at an airport, my mom likes to tell this story. She and my dad were getting on a plane, and it was one of the ones where you just go up the staircase right next to the plane from outside. And my dad got pulled over and, you know, told to stand against a wall, spread eagle, and they frisked him and stuff. And my mom's like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, he fits a terrorist profile. (laughs) (laughs) And and then my mom was like, do you need to search me? And they were like, no. And my mom always says that she felt kind of uh, miffed that they apparently considered her no threat whatsoever. (laughs) My mom is the least threatening person, least threatening looking person in the world. But so is your dad. My dad does look kind of nerdy. He's very tall, though. Yeah, he's And that can be intimidating. But he's, like, skinny and, like, very... Maybe skinny skinny tall nerds was the terrorist profile. Yeah, skinny tall nerds, um, you know, kids who live in their basements and build bombs. Okay, here, Okay, I guess I'll, I'll qualify it by saying I wish that that was still what we, like, would assume about terrorists. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, yes, young white men are generally more responsible for that kind of activity in the U.S. these days. And that's as political as I'm going to get. But, um, but your dad is, like, the nicest, like, most polite person in the world. So it's hilarious to imagine him being considered a terrorist. Yeah. That's why it's a funny story. In other contexts, this story could be very not funny. Like, I have, like, unironically compared your dad to Mr. Rogers, Mm -hmm. if that gives the audience an idea of the kind of person we're talking about. He does often dress like Mr. Rogers. (laughs) It's a lot of cardigans. Mm Mm-hmm. One other thing, since I just mentioned the scene with the flower girl, I thought that that was interesting, because it was a moment of them just deciding that they still had the right to corner someone and demand information out of her. And then it's like, you show her your badge. No, you show her your badge. And realizing, like, they actually have no jurisdiction or ability. And that was, I think, one of the starkest moments of, oh, they only get away with the stuff they do because they have a badge. And maybe police officers should not mm-hmm. be behaving this way. And it's it's not often that the show... Seems at all reflective on the poor, like, the the ethically questionable police practices that the guys sometimes engage in. So I thought that that was interesting. And obviously, their their most unethical police activity was apparently sanctioned by the department when they uh, are talking to those FBI guys. And then, like, pushing them against the wall and holding guns to their head. Mm-hmm. Was it the FBI? Yeah. Yeah, okay. But then we found out, like, oh, this was actually part of them getting a confession. And it's like, well, 
that's not great. But I guess they had permission? Yeah. The ethics of, of policing are fuzzy. I mean, the, F- the FBI like their weird sting operations. They mm-hmm. can't do anything straightforward, I don't think. That's true. I kind of wanted to then go back to the very, 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 very beginning. Okay. Hutch's Serapa. <laughs> his poncho. His, yeah, his, I think I think that's a a, pon- a full-on poncho, not just a Serape. Yeah. And the moment where he leans out of the car window and does peace signs. <laughs> <laughs> what a dork. But it works. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love those ladies so much. Yeah. Hopefully their sentences aren't too long, I guess. I mean, yeah, or maybe maybe they should mules. be long. They were dealing thousands of dollars, maybe even millions of dollars worth of coke, but they they certainly had spunk and pizzazz. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I do feel like that sir, that Poncho, like I understand that they're place they are plain clothes officers and that they can wear whatever they want on the job and they often do. And despite the tightness of their jeans, usually I'm like, okay, those are relatively practical clothes for doing the kind of thing that you do. You were wearing pants and a shirt and, you know, boots or, or tennis shoes. It's the first time I've ever said tennis shoes. I think the Midwest has infected me. Uh, <laughs> sneakers. But then you've got Hutch in a, a poncho with enough fabric that it might as well be a dress. And it's like waving all over the place and getting caught in things. And I'm like... This cannot possibly be the best wardrobe choice for like a sting operation. Mm. <laughs> consider, this is not consider, good. they were doing a stakeout. Maybe they started late at night. Maybe they were there through the wee hours of the morning when it was kind of cold up in the mountains of uh, Nevada. Basically, maybe that was like Hutch's shoot. What are those blankets with sleeves called? Snuggly, snuggy, snuggy. Maybe, maybe Hutch just wanted something that he could like wrap, like cuddle up in on the Trino's passenger seat and sleep. And it was like a poncho. That'll be cozy. Why were they even in Las Vegas to catch those? To catch the drug, like. Las Vegas has police officers. They were coming to Los Angeles. In fact, maybe they were actually um, on the borders of Los Angeles. Yeah, like, maybe. I don't know how long the girls were driving before. Yeah, like, the, the girls started in Vegas, certainly, but I feel like they had to have gotten closer to Starsky and Hutch's actual jurisdiction mm-hmm. when they intercepted them, because otherwise that's weird. There are other cops in the world. <laughs> the show may not have us believe that, but there are other police officers. Well, remember, they had to go to Las Vegas to, to catch the Strangler. Right, but at that point they were asked to do so, <laughs> and we had a justification Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not as bad as in, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Unsub, where they just randomly had jurisdiction in Canada. That was for an weird. Episode. <laughs> it's like, why? Why are they there? Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Possible band name The Canadian Jurisdiction. <laughs> <laughs> I still think our band name should be Assassination. No. No one would know how to pronounce it. Rachel, yeah. could that be our episode title? Sure. <laughs> One thing that's really fun about this three-parter is that we see so many familiar faces with the actors. Like, the judge we've seen in As the Bad Guy in Class and Crime and Iron Mike. Um, There's the Simonetti actor as Gunther's lackey, of course. The, um, the guy who was in the employment office, who was super nerdy, he's from the Terry Nash episodes as the bank manager dude. Oh. I, it took me forever. I was staring at him. I was like, he absolutely has been in another episode, but I couldn't remember what episode it is. And then suddenly it struck me like, yes, because I remember like Hutch holding his nose as he was like speaking into the phone. <laughs> but like, it was just... Yes, there were just so many familiar faces in this, and I think I'm missing like a couple, but nice. those are the ones that really stuck out to me. You're so much better at remembering faces yeah. than I am. <laughs> I I didn't remember anyone, and I I mean the only reason I found out about Ted Neely was that I was googling targets without a badge because I was like, he has a very distinctive face. Where have I seen him before? By the way, if you start to type in targets with 
uh, into Google, it'll autofill targets with self-checkouts. <laughs> so <laughs> I want that episode now. These days I have to imagine most of them. Yeah. Not all. Okay. But with the with all the actors, you know, recurring, it, as a, as a, as like an ending of the series, you know, it was like, oh, hey, we've seen those actors in these ro- in other roles in the show. So it was like a cool, like, you know, I liked that. As, like, sort of a nod to the series. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just because they like to reuse actors, but, but it felt so like cool. that. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I'm glad you caught that. All right. So I wanted to wreck a fic that Targets Without a Badge reminded me of. Now, I know I've read fic that actually, like, deals with Targets Without a Badge that aren't just, like, Sweet Revenge uh, post stories. But I couldn't remember any at the moment. So one that I think of sometimes when I watch these episodes is uh, Promises to Keep by Terry White. When I see uh, Starsky leave Lionel's side to run to Hutch when Hutch is injured, I get it. I think it does make emotional sense that Starsky would do that. But I always feel like, oh, Starsky, stay with Lionel or... Or, I don't know, taking Lionel with him would probably be a bad idea because most likely there'd be, like, a sniper outside somewhere. But, I don't know, just abandoning Lionel uh, was definitely the wrong thing for a police officer to do in that situation. And Promises to Keep satisfies me because in the story there is a point where Starsky has to choose between caring for Hutch or protecting a, a witness or protecting a someone who wants to churn evidence. Um, and in this story, uh, he, he angsts about it quite a bit, but he ends up protecting the witness and having to leave Hutch behind in a situation. And although Starsky and Hutch's codependent relationship and infinite loyalty to each other is so good... And the fact that, like, they say that they just trust each other, which I think is a little of an oversimplification, because obviously they trust Dobie, and they obviously trust Huggy. But when it comes down to it, it's true. They don't trust the police department. They don't trust <laughs> most people in their lives. Uh, is pretty uh, distrustful even of his brother. Like, they do trust each other to an extent that they don't afford most people so, like, I, I do love that so much, but when it comes down to protecting a citizen or protecting the other, I think I do prefer it when they choose the citizen. I think I do prefer it when they take their their duty over their relationship and then how hard it must be when they have to do that. And this story, I think, has a, a great example of it. I also love it because it's set in a snowy, um, isolated mountain Uh, There's a cabin they have to pick up the witness from. uh, And that wintry scenery is a setting I love in stories. I don't want to give away too many plot points. I've already kind of given away a a central thing because now you know that Starsky does choose to protect the witness. And again, he's not only a witness, he just, he's a bad guy who wants to, is it called turn state's evidence or something like that? But yes, uh, I think I read this story when we were at the Iowa Archives. And it's from, I think it's one of Cherry White's earlier stories. 1979. Ni- thank you, 1979. So definitely an early classic. It's a very good story. Awesome. Well, I think we might be wrapping up, unless anybody has anything else they want to share today. I mean, as always, Tarski and Hutch are so much in love. They are very in love. And we really welcome any conversation uh, this spawns. Monica's always kind enough to uh, let us know what the Facebook group is talking about. And I hope that this prompts conversations about Targets Without a Badge and its significance in the series as a whole. Um, If you want to uh, have that conversation uh, with us in any space, you can find us on our website, meandtheand3.com. You can find us on Twitter at methe 3 and you can email us at meandtheand3 at gmail.com. And we're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search on those uh, sites for me and the and 3 All right. Well, until next time, 
Think about today instead. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the buzz? I could give you facts and figures. What's the buzz? Even give you plans and forecasts. Even tell you where I'm going. When do we ride to Jerusalem? When do we ride to Jerusalem? Why should you wanna know? Why are you obsessed with fighting? Times and fates you can't define. If you knew the path we're riding, you'd understand it less than I. What's the best? Tell me what's happening. Yeah, you would. assassins than those guys in that episode.